Pastor Keith Crosby of Hillside Church. He's going to force her to confront her own complacency, and he's going to force her to choose. Verse 26, Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Think about that. I who speak to you am he. I am the Christ. I am the Messiah. I am the one who brings salvation. I am the one who knows the answers to these questions. I can see the promised land Though there's pain within the plan There is victory in the end Your love is my battle cry The answer for all my life Every dragon will fall The mountains will move Every chain of the past You've broken into All the fear of the lies We're singing the truth That nothing is impossible With you Well, hello and welcome to today's edition of the Grace to Live radio broadcast with Keith Crosby, Senior Pastor of Hillside Church in San Jose, California. We are so grateful that you've chosen to spend time with us today on the program. And as always, we would encourage you to follow along with us in your Bibles if you can. On today's edition of Grace to Live, we are continuing with Pastor Keith's series entitled Church Matters. So if you have your Bibles... Please turn with us today to the book of 1 Timothy, chapter 1. Now, here's Pastor Keith with today's study. Now, watch this exchange play out. Watch this give and take and think with me. Verse 20, she tries to turn the matter about, well, this is what you say, this is what I believe, you believe what you believe, I believe what I believe, and we'll just call it a day. Verse 20, our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you... That means you Jews, you all say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. She's basically saying your people and my people differ differ on our approach to worship, but we both worship God. So she's actually getting into doctrine here, but she's getting it all wrong. She's tilting towards something that we call moral equivalency. This is what you do. This is what we do. Who's to say who's wrong? It's probably about the same. You see this a lot in our culture today. I'm reminded that she was postmodern before postmodern was cool. But how does Jesus respond to her? Does he say, oh, that's true. Who am I to say that you're wrong? Who are you to say that I'm wrong? Does he say that? Not a chance. Not, uh, not at all. He indicates that she's dead wrong. He's going to indicate that she's missing the forest for the trees. He's going to indicate that she doesn't even understand God. She doesn't understand the Bible. She doesn't understand the God of the Bible or the teaching and doctrine. And so first he deals with her focusing on the wrong things in verse 21. Jesus said to her, John 4, 21, Jesus said to her, woman, ma'am, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Now watch what he says next because this is critical. Verse 22, You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. Now think about that. You worship what you don't know. You don't even know what you worship. You don't even know, you don't know God. You don't don't understand what you say you believe. 
Now, maybe she's sincere, not good enough. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. So much for pluralism, right? So much for uh, your truth and my truth. You see, Jesus is using this to separate, to, to draw a line for her. Because doctrine does divide. It separates the sheep from the goats, the wheat from the tares, the true worshiper from the false worshiper, the saved from the lost. Doctrine does divide, and he is using this to try to get her to to focus on what is true and cling to it. Let's go on to Act 3 in this five-act play. Act 3 we call the insinuation. Jesus insinuates that their doctrine and consequently their understanding of God is unsound, it's unreliable, it's unstable, it's clueless, and it's useless to them. Again, verse 22, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. He's saying she's completely off base. And then at the end of verse 22, we have this statement. Call it 22b. For... Because salvation is from the Jews. Let's put that together. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. Now, being a Samaritan, that's the last thing you want to hear. But the fact of the matter is they had God all wrong. The Samaritans had a hybrid version of worship that was a mixture of Judaism and a mixture of idol worship and a mixture of folk religion from somewhere else in the uh, Arabian Peninsula, and they had mixed it all together. And Jesus is telling her, you're not even close. You, you don't understand. Your doctrine is all wrong. The teaching that you have embraced is all wrong. Now watch what he says in verse 23. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers, real worshipers, will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. I want to read this again, and I want you to look at that phrase, in, or that clause, in spirit and in truth. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Do not miss what he's saying here. Spirit and truth speaks to sincerity, spirit with a small s, not the Holy Spirit, but spirit, the spirit, the right spirit. Sincerity. True belief in spirit and, not or, but and in truth. And truth refers to accuracy, precision, being on target. Don't miss what he's saying here, spirit and truth, sincerity and precision. He's very subtly, yet painfully and mercifully, and yes, kindly, all these rolled into one, telling her that she's not a true worshiper, telling her that she's outside the family of God. Because she doesn't know what she worships, and she doesn't understand it. Furthermore, I would say, as a woman who is obviously very immoral, whatever religion she had was external, so that takes out the spirit, and then the truth part is all the doctrinal confusion that the Samaritans were wrapped up in. You see, doctrine matters. There's a right way to worship God and a wrong way. There are right worshipers, true worshipers, as Jesus says, and false worshipers. True worshipers, he tells her, worship, watch this, in spirit and in truth. Then now he's going to double down on the use of that spirit and truth statement. 
and he's going to drive it home. Look at verse 23. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For because the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Verse 24, God is spirit and those who worship him, those who worship God must worship in spirit and in truth. God seeks such people that will worship him in sincerity and precision. And precision really speaks to according to his dictates, according to his will. And those who want to worship him in sincerity are only too happy to do so the way that he prescribes. Those who truly love God, those who truly want God, must worship him, must, is the word used there, in spirit and in truth. Worship that pleases God is sincere and genuine worship in spirit. Worship that pleases God is accurate, is according to his will, not something that we make up. That's true worship from true worshipers who know who and what they worship. Notice that God seeks such people to worship him, true worshipers that worship him in spirit and in truth. It's not good enough just to be sincere. It's not good enough to be well-intended, to have good intentions. I'm sure there are Mormons who have good intentions. I'm sure there are Muslims who have good intentions, Hindus who have good intentions, but the bottom line, they worship what they don't know. And in so doing, in most cases, they worship something satanic or demonic. When you think about it, worshiping in spirit and truth, that's an old, old, old principle. Where do we find it? We find it in Genesis, right? Cain and Abel. Cain worshiped him, God, the way he wanted to. And instead of offering a blood sacrifice, he offered fruit or produce from his his garden. Uh, Abel, on the other hand, offered a blood sacrifice. God accepted one and rejected the other. And we know how that all turned out in the end. It's the same thing with Nadab and Abihu, Aaron's sons who offered strange fire and God incinerated them. God has a particular way he wants to be worshipped and he wants us to worship him knowledgeably, accurately, wisely, biblically. Which brings us now to act four of our five act play or drama here with the woman at the well and this unfolding this wider unfolding drama of redemption act four we call the disputation the woman of samaria now attempts to play an ancient version of that's just your interpretation of course she doesn't know who he is right and his interpretation is the right interpretation right she implies that's just his interpretation that's the way you see it this is the way i see it who can know what's true We can't know, understand all this exhaustively. That's true, we can't, but we can understand it sufficiently. And so she's trying to say something like, let's not get hung up on interpreting and applying the Bible. It's way too hard to understand. Things will pan out in the end. Like so many today, she implies, who can really understand all this? It's as if she's saying, and she'll say this, one day God will set us all straight. Because who can know for sure? It'll all pan out somehow. And so we see in verse 25, she tries to appeal to an authority beyond the scriptures. Again, the scriptures, the Old Testament was available to the Samaritans as it was to the Jews. The Samaritans were very, supposed to be very good students of the Pentateuch. They have their own Samaritan Pentateuch, first five books of the Bible. But she clearly isn't a student of God's word. 
And furthermore, we know something about her life. God probably wasn't a priority in her life. And so she tries to do what people do today, to appeal to an authority beyond the scriptures. You have the people like uh, the red-letter Christians. Well, I'm not really into Paul and all that didactic principle, precept teaching here. I just follow the red letters in the Gospels. That's what she tries. It doesn't work too well because it's wrong. The whole Bible is inspired by God. So watch what she does in verse 25. She tries to punch. She tries to kick the issue down the road, kick the can down the road. And in verse 25, she says this. The woman said to him, I know Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Let me read this again. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. She basically says, you know what? You and I aren't going to get this straight today. What's the use? We'll wait for God to come and straighten the whole thing out. Which brings us to our fifth and final act in this, in this play, this little drama here playing out between Jesus and the Samaritan woman. Jesus is going to take away her remaining objection. He's going to force her to confront her own complacency and sinfulness and admit her or come to terms with her erroneous beliefs, and he's going to force her to choose. Verse 26, Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Think about that. I who speak to you am he. I am the Christ. I am the Messiah. I am the one who brings salvation. I am the one who knows the answers to these questions. Which means he's right and she's wrong. She's got to decide whether he's the Messiah or not. Whether she will trust what he says. And in a way, it comes full circle because in John 4.10, he already told her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is speaking to you and saying, give me to drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Jesus said to her, John 4.26, I who speak to you am he. And again, this is an allusion, a reference to Jeremiah 2.13, Jeremiah 17.13, and other passages where God is described as the one who gives living water, the source of life. Jesus is saying, I would have given you eternal life if you had recognized me. I would have given you water that will make you never thirst again. That's the eternal life. He's saying, I am God. I am the Messiah. I am salvation. Salvation that comes from the Jews. You've worshipped what you did not know, and now it's time for you to worship me in spirit and in truth. You must worship in spirit and in truth. There is no room for anything else because doctrine matters. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know. Salvation is from the Jews. She can either accept Christ here and his loving correction and the hope of eternal life that he offers her or reject him. He leaves her no wiggle room. He never does. He doesn't intend to. It's a decision that you and I had to make as born-again believers, right, as born-again Christians, as true worshipers, as Christ followers, where we had to turn from all that we had once believed in and put our faith and our confidence and our trust in Christ. We had to repent of worshiping ourselves or our own agendas and turn to the only one who could save That's what he's telling her here. Will she receive and accept the living water? Will she see him as the Messiah? Will she worship him in spirit and in truth? Will she grab hold of sound doctrine that will guide her to that place? 
Well, the context shows that she does, right? She runs off, tells the people in the village all about what happened. People come to Christ because Jesus corrected her understanding, because Jesus revealed to her how to worship in spirit and in truth. Doctrine matters. Doctrine divides. Worship unites. Doctrine separates the false believer from the true believer, the wheat from the tares, the sheep from the goats, the saved from the unsaved. And then it unites all real, true God worshipers, right, in worship. Doctrine divides the lost from the saved and unites the saved in right and proper worship of the one, the true, and the only God there is. As we worship him according to his word, according to his teaching, doctrine and teaching are synonymous. Theology, doctrine, and teaching are, are synonymous. Theology is the understanding of God and how he sees himself and how he wants us to see him. That's doctrine. That's teaching. True worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must, the text says, the Holy Spirit speaking here through the text of Scripture, must worship him in spirit and in truth. And that's why Paul said in 1 Timothy 1, 3 through 5, this, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any other doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge, of our responsibility, is love that issues from a pure heart and spirit and a good conscience and a sincere faith and in truth. A good conscience is a clear conscience that understands right from wrong according to the will of God. Doctrine matters to God because without doctrine, the church can't worship him any more than the Samaritans could or the Mormons can. Make no mistake, doctrine divides and worship unites. It separates the wheat from the tares, the true believer from the false believer, the true worshiper from the false worshiper. Realize that doctrine matters. Think about it. The doctrine of salvation, that's the gospel. Think about it. What is doctrine? What is the gospel? I had somebody answer that, ask that question once in a meeting. I was like, you don't know? What is the gospel? It's information. It's information about God. It's information about how to be saved. It's information that God wants people to have. But you know what? Bad information kills. Bad information damns. Bad information confuses. Bad information leads to endless speculations about nothing. If you're an engineer, you have to have good data. If you're an oncologist, you need good data to treat your patients. If you're a medical professional, you need good data. And if you're a Christian, you need good doctrine so that you can understand your salvation and explain it to other, others, so that you can understand your God, the God, the only God there is, and share that understanding with others. You want a church's doctrine to stem from pure motives, pure methods, a good and a clear conscience, and a sincere informed faith. Untainted, uncontaminated, God must be worshipped in spirit and in truth. That's what he seeks. There's no room for anything else Anything else like this, Jesus born out of wedlock, refugee to Egypt without, pa- without papers, dirt poor in a cave in a slimy feed trough, that's not good doctrine. 
True worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. That's what Jesus says. The Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. And you know what? This isn't the only time Jesus says that. In the Sermon on the Mount, he talks about doctrine. You have heard it said, but I say to you. He's correcting unsound teaching. And even at the end of the Bible, Jesus comes back to the issue of doctrine. And most people miss it. If you look in Revelation 2 and 3, the letters to the seven churches. There are seven churches. Two get a passing grade. Five are threatened with destruction. What are the five threatened with destruction? There is the church that lost its first love. There is the lukewarm church. There is the deluded church. There is the church who allows the doctrine of the Nicolaitans to be taught, and there's the church where a false prophetess teaches. Two of those five are condemned, are failed, are judged because of their doctrine. And even in the text, it says they did some things right, that they got a lot of things mostly right. He says, but this I have against you. It's doctrinal. Why? Because that lack of sound doctrine leads to lukewarmness. Lack of sound doctrine leads to delusion lack of sound doctrine leads to losing your first love and that's why doctrine matters because church matters and good churches are good because they have good doctrine because they understand how to love God and how to love one another and how to do God's business God's way so what do you do with all this what do you do with all this here's three suggestions for application number one Know with certainty that doctrine, belief matters and accept no substitutes and tolerate no compromise. John 4, 24, Jesus says, Hear him, those who worship him, those who worship the Father must worship him in spirit and in truth, in sincerity and with precision. Doctrine Matters, except no substitutes, tolerate no compromise. Number two, application number two is this. Understand with certainty that sincerity alone isn't good enough. Good intentions don't count, just like works don't save. And Jesus says this. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. Salvation is from the Jews. And in John 4, and 23, he says this, and he drives this home again. True worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth and sincerity and precision. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Number three, application number three. Embrace, if you haven't already, the only Savior that there is. That's what Jesus said in John 4, 26. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. I am the well of living water. I am the Messiah. I am the Savior. Accept no substitutes. You may have spent your life in church. You may be religious. You may be spiritual. You may be sincere and sincerely wrong. And it all comes, is set aright when you embrace the one, the true, and the only Savior there is, ever has been, and ever will be. Jesus Christ, when you turn from your sin and put your faith in the Messiah. Doctrine matters to God, therefore it matters to the church. And doctrine should matter to you and I if we love God. If you truly love God 
and want to worship Him truly, doctrine matters. Pastor Keith Crosby with today's Grace to Live radio broadcast. We are so grateful that you've chosen to spend this time with us today here on the program. And if you have questions about today's show, or if you'd like to hear more messages from Pastor Keith, then I would encourage you to visit our website, hillsidechurch.org. There you can listen to past sermons and other content from Pastor Keith just by clicking the Sermon Archive tab. And you can also find links to Pastor Keith's blog, as well as the Out of My Mind podcast. The website is also a great place to connect with us here at Hillside. You can find information on our service times, ministry opportunities, and of course you can browse our calendar of upcoming events. Again, all this and much, much more can be found by visiting our website, hillsidechurch.org. Well, we hope that you'll join us again next time on Grace to Live. But until then... I'm your host, Kevin Reeves, and on behalf of Pastor Keith and everyone here at Hillside Church, it is our prayer that the Lord will richly bless you, and thanks for listening. Amen.